for those of you who are attempting to follow the service on the live stream, we're experiencing some technical difficulties today. You can um, stick with it. You'll still be able to hear the message. You won't be able to, to uh, see me, but maybe that's a blessing in disguise. So stick with it, and you can still track with the sermon today. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, what a privilege it is now to hear your word. And we come as those desperate to hear from you. We come filled with gratitude for the opportunity to hear from you. And we come dependent upon you, recognizing that the Holy Spirit must accompany this message, not only for the speaker, but the hearers. For without your Spirit, this is word only and not in power, and there will not be abundant conviction. So come, Lord, speak to us through your word, and may this be clear May this point to Christ and not bring confusion, but be edifying to the souls of your people. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. My son, Ethan, and his wife, Allie, have recently moved to Virginia um, to begin uh, the four-year journey of medical school. A quick update for everybody. Everything's going well. Um, Ethan is really enjoying uh, medical school a lot, and Allie has found a job. She's uh, a nurse, and she's working in uh, the emergency room, so that's, that's really good. But most importantly, I, I think, they've found a really good church where they are really plugging in already, hearing the word preached, and connecting there at the church um, Ethan's texted me a lot. He's been studying the spine lately. And he said, I'll quote him, his text. Quotes, it's absolutely stunning how complex, beautiful, and collaborative it is with everything else in the body. I'm excited to learn more about it. End quotes. And my son's going to be a good doctor. He just is. And because he has a heart to draw near to people when they, when they smell and they have diseases, to listen to them and to help them not only recover from sickness, but to find a state of good health. And you know what? Luke, who wrote this book that we've been studying, would understand that. He would. You know why? He was a physician. Luke, the physician. And you know what else? Most importantly, Jesus understands the heart of a physician, for he is the great physician, the physician of our souls. That is the great theme of our passage here this morning. Take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5 and find verse 27. 
Luke chapter 5. And find verse 27. You have a bulletin handout. It's quite detailed today, so it might be helpful to fill in those blanks as you go through to track the message a little bit more easily. Luke chapter 5, verse 27. Look at the words as I read and let this, let this beautiful text sink into your hearts. Verse 27 of Luke chapter 5. After that, he went out and noticed a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he left everything behind and got up and began to follow him. And Levi gave a big reception for him in his house. And there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were, who were reclining at the table with them. The Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered and said to them, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The great physician, Jesus, the great physician, Jesus, heals sick sinners. And he's still doing it. The great physician, Jesus, heals sick sinners by calling them to repentance. So we're going to look at this, I, I think, essential text. I say that every week, don't I? <laughs> this essential text, we're going to look at it under two headings. Okay, number one, we're going to look at converting the sinner, converting the sinner, and secondly, we'll look at confronting the self-righteous. That's simply what happens in this passage, converting the sinner and confronting the self-righteous. So first then, converting the sinner, in verses 27 through 29, uh, an incredible passage where, where Jesus calls a, uh, a notorious, a notorious sinner to follow him. And, and in not only an incredible passage, but an incredible picture of conversion to Christ. If you ever wondered, if you're sitting in your seat or you're listening in, you're certainly not watching, if you're listening in today and you've ever wondered, what does it look like to become a Christian? What does that even look like? And you're a little bit confused about it, here you go. This is your passage. And there are five components to Jesus converting the sinner Levi in this passage. Five components. First, let's look at all five as we look at this marvelous picture of conversion. Number one, sought by Jesus. Sought by Jesus. Verse 27, after that he went out and noticed a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax booth. I love that. 
Jesus noticed a tax collector. The tax collector to the text doesn't say noticed Jesus. The text says that Jesus noticed the tax collector. This word for noticed isn't a fleeting glance. This is to, to look at, to slow down, to observe. How about a good translation? Stared at. It's an intentional look, and and Luke is emphasizing in the conversion of sinners, he is emphasizing the initiative, the first move of Jesus Christ in each of our conversions. He's emphasizing that Jesus came to seek sinners. Horrible sinners, outcast sinners, helpless sinners. His name was Levi in this passage. This is the same guy as Matthew. I'm not going to explain why, but it is. It's Matthew. And Matthew was a tax collector. And Jesus, as one commentator says, consciously singles this man out. Jesus noticed a tax collector. What's the big deal? a tax collector. Well, a tax collector in that day was the very worst of the worst in Israel. In those days, as you know, the Roman Empire was in control of Israel. And the Roman Empire expected tribute from Israel in the form of taxation. But they weren't going to do it themselves. So what Rome did is they bid out, they bid out the, op, the financial opportunity to the Jews, to some Jews. Jewish people would, could, could have the opportunity to, to gain the right by bidding, a bidding war to see who would have the opportunity to become the chief tax collector. So the chief tax collector would be a Jew, right, who bid out from the Romans and then would, would then be the one to go out and collect tax from their fellow Jews for the Romans, the occupying power. Now the chief tax collector started his own small business, And so he would hire because he didn't want to get dirt on himself. He would hire local scum, local tax collectors who would do the dirty work of sitting in the booths looking fellow Jews in the eye and taking their money. Matthew was a local tax collector. And if Matthew's going to earn a good living, he had to tax in excess as to what the Roman government was going to take. How was the chief tax collector and the people underneath him, how are they going to make money 
Rome wants their share, and it's going to be a lot. How are they going to make money? Well, they can go ahead. If you want to make money, go ahead. Tax them away as much as you want. There was no limit as to what these local tax collectors could charge. And so their fellow Jews hated them. Why? Because they were turncoat traitors to the Roman government. And number two is they stole their money. They were traitors. They were, they were hated. They, these local tax collectors like Levi would be known for extortion, for loan sharking, for lying. In fact, one technical commentator says this, quotes, the local tax collectors employed thugs to physically intimidate people into paying and then beat up those who refused, end quotes. According to Mark chapter 2, Levi's booth was located near the shore on the seas of Galilee near Capernaum, which suggests he targeted the most popular tradesmen of all, the fishermen, and would make him especially despised by the common people. Here was a Jew who had despised his upbringing from his mom and dad. Here was a Jew who had given himself over to his vicious greed. Here was a Jew who found a job accordant with his dark, hard heart. And one can only guess how much Levi despised the faces of the poor in his community, how much Levi shattered the retirement funds of the widows in Capernaum, how much Levi robbed the friendless and unprotected orphan. The Talmud commentators classified them as straight-out thieves and robbers under the judgment of God. When you think of a tax collector, think of the worst scum of this age. Does Jesus notice a scribe? Does Jesus notice a Pharisee? Did Jesus notice a teacher of the law? No, Jesus noticed and stopped for Levi, Levi, a scumbag tax collector, hated by his fellow Jews. Who makes the first move in the conversion of this despicable sinner? Jesus noticed Levi. This is the very heart of Christ. This is the very nature of unmerited favor, of grace itself. We do not earn an audience with the Most High God. We've got nothing to commend ourselves. Jesus must come to us. Jesus must seek us first, and he does, and he did in the day of his power. He noticed you. Did you deserve it? He must seek us first if we're ever going to be saved. This is the first component in your conversion. It's not you figuring out the gospel and being better than the next guy. It's Jesus seeking a scumbag sinner like you first. And this is Jesus' specialty. This is his heartbeat. He loves to do this. Listen to the preacher J.C. Ryle. 
if you think that you have sinned too much to ever be loved by God, to ever be sought out by God, listen to this passage today. Listen to these words by J.C. Ryle, who said this, quotes, We must never despair of anyone's salvation. So long as he lives, after reading a case like this, we must never say of anyone that he is too wicked or too hardened or too worldly to become a Christian. No sins are too many or too bad to be forgiven. No heart is too hard or too worldly to be changed as he who called Levi still lives and is the same that he was 2,000 years ago. With Christ, nothing is impossible, in quotes. Number one, then, in your conversion, you were sought by Jesus while you were a sinner. Number two, You were spoken to by Jesus. He didn't appear to you in the shower. I get it. He appeared to you by speaking through His Word, the Word of the Gospel. But He was spoken to you by Jesus. Spoken to by Jesus, verse 27, second component. After that, He went out and noticed a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax booth. And He said to him, follow me. You know, when Levi caught the eyes of Jesus, and it was a bit of a stare, kind of reminds me of maybe the look or the stare that Jesus gave Peter after he denied Christ three times, and Jesus caught his eye. It was a look like that. It was a bit of a stare. I wonder what went through Levi's mind. What does he want from me? Levi has been hearing things. The answer is, what does Jesus want from him? I'll tell you what he wants. Two words. This is what he wants from every single person that he calls. Not just for the elite. Not just for disciples. Not just for pastors, elders, deacons. This is what he wants. This is the call. To every single person in this room, Jesus says, follow me. Follow me. That's it. This is the call to faith in Jesus. Faith follows. Faith follows. And what's interesting is Jesus is here, Levi is here, and Levi and Jesus are sort of tracking. That's following. Am I right? You can't see me. I'm sorry, live stream, but he's tracking. Jesus actually wants to be in fellowship with this guy, to be with him, to be in his presence, following him, as we'll find out for three years. Sinner like this. Follow me. You have to understand, I think you're getting this, that people would be shocked by this. Now, work with me here. Of all the people that lived in Capernaum, 
Jesus, in calling Levi, just may have chosen the very least qualified in the entire city to follow him. Think he's got a point? The least one. He would call the most publicly unacceptable person in town. I mean, poor Levi was a a man that probably didn't get out much. He's not going to be invited anywhere. He was rejected by all but perhaps some of his friends who are in the same trade as him. He would have been, by the religious leaders, just thrown under the judgment of God and written off as one too hardened to be helped, a, a, a hardened sinner that has rejected God and is being judged by God. But Jesus stops for him and speaks two words to him, follow me. Now, you say, what does it mean? What does it mean to follow Jesus? You know, sometimes, I, sometimes we need to not explain that and just look at the passage. You know, because here, here's the truth. Are you ready? You know what that means. You know what it means. It certainly doesn't mean believing in Jesus in your head and then living for yourself. You know what that means. Well, and I don't like to define it because for each of us, following Jesus is going to look a little bit different. But let me help you and show you what it looked like for Levi. Here's what it looked like. Number three, then, component of conversion. Selling all for Jesus. Selling all for Jesus. Verse 28. If you're taking the oath, selling all for Jesus. And he left everything behind and got up and began to follow him. So Levi says yes to Jesus, and he begins to follow him. And the verb tense of, of following him there is he began and continued to follow Christ. This was a decisive get-up-and-go moment to follow Jesus. But notice, he left everything behind. Now, this is incredible to me because while Levi was a scumbag, if you're uncomfortable with that term, then we've nailed it. While Levi was a scumbag, he was a filthy rich scumbag. (laughs) So he had a successful business. He was making a lot of money. And I want you to see that he left his money behind. He left his tax. It actually, he makes a point of it. Levi's sitting in the tax booth. And he left everything behind. He left his tax booth behind. And he could never return to this living. I mean, the fishermen that were called could return to fishing. Peter himself tried. I think he got rebuked for it. (laughs) But he tried. There's no going back for Levi once he leaves this. Perhaps fishermen could do that. He could not. But it's a decisive break with his past. 
Do you think the Holy Spirit is working on Levi's heart? Because Levi is seeing something. He's seeing the glory and the value of following Jesus. And he's looking at what he has, and he's going, not even close. Jesus is unbelievable. What he's offering me, the blessing and joy and riches spiritually of following Jesus, makes the things that he's leaving grow strangely dim. This is the heart of conversion. This is the heart of conversion. It's a, it's a softening of your heart to see that Jesus is worthy of leaving your sin and self on the sidewalk and turning to follow him. Because you've seen his glory. And now you have a new desire and longing and hope. And you have a decisive break of following Jesus. Levi sold all for Jesus. You say, why? I'll tell you why. Let me make it clear from this text. Number four, savoring Jesus. This is a component, this is a component of conversion. You know what savoring means? Enjoying Jesus. Longing for Jesus. It's a word of desire. Savoring Jesus. Verse 29. And Levi was bummed out for a month because he had given up everything. No. And Levi gave a big reception for him in his house. And there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with them. Is Levi pretty excited? Here's how excited he is. It's certainly not a burden. It's not boring, this following of Christ. He is excited. His response, his first response is to throw a party, a great one, for, that's what this word translated reception, terrible translation, my opinion, is it's a feast, if you have that's better. It's a feast. It could be translated a feast in the Old Testament. A feast is a celebration. It, there was feasting. It was joyful, and there was laughter, and there was rejoicing, and there was merriment. Guess who the honored guest is? It's Jesus. It's a feast for Jesus and the honor of Jesus and who He is and what He has done. And notice that Levi opens up his own house. It's in his own house, and they're there for a long time. The text says they're reclining there. In that culture, when they would feast, I'm not going to do it, but they would lay down. They would lay down and on the ground, and they would put their left elbow there, and they reach with their right hand for food around a circle, and the person would be behind them, and they would be reclining in joy and fellowship at the house. This is what Luke is telling us. He's telling us this. To be called by Jesus and converted to follow Jesus is a cause for celebration. It's a cause for celebration. 
It's the greatest cause of celebration in all the universe is to know that you know that you know that you've been called by Jesus. You're converted to Jesus. That you're forgiven and righteous in Jesus. You're part of God's family. It's the, co- it's the greatest cause of celebration in all of the universe. There will be temporal losses in coming to Christ. Temporal. I mean, Levi experienced it, I'm sure, but Levi was just overwhelmed with joy in knowing Jesus. I love again what the great preacher J.C. Ryle said about my conversion, about your conversion. Listen to these words, quotes. It is fa- your conversion is far more important, a far more important event than being married or coming of age or being made a nobleman or receiving a great fortune. It is the birth of an immortal soul. It is the rescue of a sinner from hell. It is passage from life to death. It is being made a king and priest forevermore. It is being provided for both in time and eternity. It is adoption into the noblest and riches of all families, the family of God, in quotes. Savoring Jesus now makes sense. (laughs) That was the fourth component to conversion. The fifth component of conversion is a desire for, number five, showing Jesus. Showing Jesus. So there's a reception for Jesus at his house, and Levi invites a lot of people to that reception. Did you see it in the text? He's using the income that he has for good purposes here in verse 29. He gives a big reception for him in his house, verse 29, and there was a great crowd, a lot of people, of tax collectors. And the people who were reclining at the table with them. Now, why do you think he invites his fellow tax collectors and others or other sinners like himself? Well, as point of fact, I'm not sure anybody else would have come. The Pharisees know all about this party. In fact, I just, my imagination runs wild as you dig into these passages. I just see them, you know, at the window, in the dark, at the window of Levi's house, peeking in the window. Aha! Tax collectors and sinners. I knew it. Secretly jealous that they're not there eating, but on the other hand, they wouldn't be caught dead eating. But they knew about it. We'll see that in a minute. Well, Probably nobody else would come, but here's what I think Luke is trying to teach us here. That that Levi wants his fellow tax collectors, those who are like him, sinners like him, the despised like him, the outcasts like him, to know Jesus, to know that there is one who loves them, to know there is one who stops for them, who notices them. And we'll call them too. Perhaps he may call you too. I want you to come. I want you to meet Jesus. I've heard he's the Christ. He's the Messiah. He stops for sinners. 
So Levi is pretty excited, and so he wants to show Jesus to others. And when you're converted, right, brothers and sisters? We're scared to death sharing Jesus and showing Jesus. Can I get an amen? Yes. But we desire to show Jesus to others. That is true. Just because we're bad at it doesn't mean we don't want it and want to grow in it so badly. We want to show others, if only they could know the hope that we have, the joy that we have. Like the Samaritan woman who met Jesus at the well and said, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Come, come and see. Or like Andrew to Peter. Remember Andrew and Peter are brothers? Like Andrew cried to Peter, Peter, we have found the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. This is the heart of a believer. This is the heart of conversion. There's a missionary heart there. We have found mercy, and we long for Jesus to give that mercy away to those whom we love. We've found grace, and we long for the grace of Christ to be given to those who we love. We can't manufacture it. They can't manufacture it. But we serve a Jesus who stops for sinners. We serve a Jesus who notices them and seeks them out. And that's our confidence, not ourselves, not our own words, but Him. And so we show them Jesus. Perhaps they too would find Him or better be found by Him. So, what an incredible passage of Jesus converting the sinner. Here's how conversion works. You're sought by Jesus. You're spoken to by Jesus. You've sold all for Jesus, which looks differently for each of us. You savor Jesus and desire to show Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And all we can say is in a passage like this, hallelujah, what a Savior, converting the sinner. Secondly, the text shifts because there's some complainers out there that don't like such good news. Confronting the self-righteous. Number two, confronting the self-righteous. Verses 30 and 31. So we have a complaint against Jesus by the Pharisees. Okay, there's a complaint. Number one here, as you break this down, there's a complaint against Jesus, and then there's going to be a clarification by Jesus. Okay, that's what we're doing under this confronting the self-righteous. So first then, the complaint against Jesus in verse 30. The Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples. The Pharisees don't have the boldness now to go to Jesus' face, so they go to his disciples. They complain against them. They grumble at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners. So the other people that were there in the house were sinners. That's how we interpret the Scripture. They were all sinners. Why do you do that? Why, why would they be such, so, such snobs? Well, we misunderstood the tax collector, and I think we misunderstand the Pharisees. The Pharisees want to be holy. The Pharisees want to keep the law of God. And they 
are doing this not out of a heart that loves God, but out of a desire to be the best, a desire to have the praise of men. But externally, these are the best of the best. The Pharisees were the theologians, not, not, not the wacko theologians. They were the orthodox theologians of the day. We're going to see in a future passage that John the Baptist's disciples got swept in to the, to the Pharisees when John the Baptist was in jail. So close and solid was their teaching. And holy on the outside was their lives. Okay, now listen. So these were the religious elite. And they had their scribes, and they would never hang out with people like Levi, not in a million years. And they would do that because in their own writings, they had erected extra laws over 400 years that, that to, to make sure they could keep the law of God. So they added to that with tradition that was almost as authoritative as the law itself and the Scriptures. They had erected these laws, and some of those laws forbid them from sharing hospitality or eating around the table with sinners, fellowshipping with sinners like this. They needed to be separated from sin, separated from sinners. Jesus cannot possibly be holy because your disciples are staining themselves with this sin. You're just one of them. You're sinners like them. We're holy. We're separate. We would never do that. So the Pharisees and the scribes have no heart for Christ. They have no heart to savor Jesus or seek Jesus or to show Jesus. They have no need of Jesus at all. They are just fine. They're more than fine. They're blameless according to the law. Let that sink in. They are the knowledgeable ones in the Scriptures. They are way, way, way better than the next guy. They are the elite among the chosen. You got the chosen people of God, and then you got the elite among the chosen people of God. If they don't get in, who will, they thought. So they are grumbling, and that word for grumbling here is so loaded. It is the same word, the specific word for grumbling is the same word used to describe Israel's complaining against God in the desert, in the wilderness wanderings. You know, it's really hard. Just We want to go back. We want to go back into the desert. We want to even uh, back into bondage. At least we had something to eat. We want to go back. They're fine with the old. Give us the old. You'll see that at the last verse of chapter 5. The Pharisees are fine with the old. We want to go back. And the book of Numbers describes this in Numbers chapter 14. This grumbling is putting God to the task, not listening to His voice, spurning God. And that is described as one word in Numbers chapter 14. Are you ready for it? What did the Pharisees lack? Numbers 14, 11, the Lord said to Moses, How long will these people spurn me? And how long will they not believe in me? Now listen to these next words. 
How long will they not believe in me despite all the signs which I have performed in their midst? What is Jesus doing? What is Jesus doing? Sound familiar? And so this grumbling heart of the Pharisees was a heart of unbelief. Levi turning to Jesus was a heart of faith. They are satisfied with their own self-righteousness. That is the complaint against Jesus. And then we find the clarification by Jesus. These are the key verses, in the, I think some of the key verses in the book of Luke that summarize the mission of our Lord Jesus Christ. The reason that the triune God sent, the Son was sent to take upon flesh and to dwell among us are found in the next two verses where Jesus clarifies his mission. Look at it in verse 31. And Jesus answered and said to them, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Jesus healed people physically, didn't he? But that was always meant as a picture of the true power and what he came to do spiritually. Jesus healed people physically, didn't he? That was always meant to be a symbol of the substance of of spiritual healing from the disease of sin. And here he gets to it. He bridges that gap of that metaphor from physical to spiritual. And he says, look, I am the physician here. And you've got people who are sick. And you've got people who are not sick. Which is which? I have not. He says, it is not to those who are well. But to those who are sick, so you guys, those who are well and those who are not sick. And you theologians are out there are saying, we're all sinners. We're all sick. Here's the answer to that. And this is so important for the gospel. I don't care theologically who you are. The question is, do you know that you are sick to death with sin or not? So those who are sick in this passage are, are those who know that you're sick, and those who are well aren't really well, but they think they're well. They're just fine, do you see? I mean, it's point of fact. There's a lot of people that walk around that are sick and don't know it. Maybe you don't feel any symptoms yet. Maybe you don't have an MRI scan to show it yet. But you are sick and you don't know it. The sick that Jesus came to heal spiritually are those that know and feel that they are sinful unto death, that they are going to die in their sin. They've been diagnosed. They've seen it. The well aren't really well. The Pharisees aren't well. They, Jesus says, I, I didn't come to save the righteous. He's not really thinking that the Pharisees are righteous. They think they're righteous. They think they're well. Does that make sense? That is the issue of the gospel. People have got to really realize that they are sinful 
and sick, and then they will begin to seek the physician of their souls. The sick. Now, let me just say this. You can write this down. Now that you know what sick means. The sick need a physician. If you have the MRI, you need help. The sick need a physician. They know that they are sinners and they need Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. Jesus says, and this is a purpose statement, this is an especial verb tense, this is a once-for-all state, this is the mission statement of our Lord Jesus Christ that defines the rest of this book right here in verse 32. If you like to circle things in your Bible, this is one of them. Verse 32, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is the mission of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he, you say, what does it look like to call a sinner to repentance? Ah, verses 27 through 29 in the call of Levi. That is the call. That's what it looks like to call sinners to repentance. He makes the first move. He notices. And watch this. The text says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You ever wonder what repentance looks like? what repentance is, here you have a, a picture of it because Levi repented. That's the context. What does it look like to repent is here's my sin and my stuff that's causing me to sin. I turn from it and I turn to Jesus and I follow Him. That's repentance. This text defines repentance very clearly. Repentance is turning from sin and self turning from to Jesus. Repent and believe. It's one move to Jesus. I leave that. I need Jesus. Save me, Lord Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 9, Paul writes to the Thessalonians how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. That is repentance. Out with the old in with the new, that is repentance. Let's just put, I like the old. Let's just put a little wine in the old. It splits it, bleeds it out. Little sneak preview. I'm fine with the old, the Pharisees said. I like myself. Repentance is an about face turning to Jesus. That's conversion. Now, Jesus doesn't go in to recline at the table with the tax collectors and other sinners in order to get drunk, in order to behave like them and sin away, but he goes in order to reach them. But, now listen to me carefully. I'm about to maybe go in places you haven't gone. We need to hear this as a church. 
Jesus reached people by contacting people. He reached people by being with people. We are not to separate from unrepentant sinners unless those unrepentant sinners are found inside the church. First Corinthians 5, verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean <laughs> with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous or swindlers or with the idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But, I, but I actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not to even eat with such a one. We got to get away, brothers and sisters. We got to get away from the superficial Christianity that will not have anything to do with, that will not be around, not invite over, not be associated with the sinful people of the world. We must go to them. We must go to them. As one has said, we must eat with them, talk with them, get to know them, hang with them, that we may be able to reach them. We cannot reach people with whom we have no contact. They're not, we can't make church about this. This is what they, people have done. They've said this, okay. They're not, they're not going to come to our church and like it. They're not going to come to our parties and our Bible studies and like it. Well, we'll just make church so they like it. No, go to them. Go to them. They're not going to like our church events. It's not appealing to them. I shouldn't expect that. Maybe if God's moving in their hearts and we'd hope that they'd come, but they don't. No worries. We must go to them. But when we get there, what do we do? We call them to repentance. But we don't do that on day one necessarily. We wait for the Spirit. We have, we have reclined with them. We've listened to them. We have heard their stories. We, we don't address them with a hammer. We address their individual stories so that we can show them the glories of Jesus. Associations with outcasts is outreach. I was really convinced about hospitality in my home, and now I really am. And frankly, our church building should be opened up to the community in some way to show the love of Christ, to show hospitality to the unbelieving world, to build these relationships. I think there's something in this passage here that might unlock the second word of our name, Grace Community Bible Church. When was the last time you had your unbelieving neighbors over to your home? Not your Grace Group. Not your Christian friends, but your outcast, unbelieving neighbors. Eating with them, talking with them, laughing with them, reclining with them, but not being ashamed about your joy in Jesus in front of them. And being willing to show them Jesus when the Spirit leads, calling them to repentance. Jesus did not separate from sinners. He served sinners in order to speak to sinners. Let me say that again. Jesus did not separate from sinners. He served sinners in order to speak with sinners. 
This, is, this was the problem in the church in the life of John Wesley. Kent Hughes tells the story of the church in England in 1739. I'm, I'm over. I'm going to finish here. The church had become so formal, so stiff, so unhospitable to the common man that Wesley could no longer preach in the churches. They didn't want, that. They didn't want his kind and the people he was ministering to inside the hallowed walls. And so he would go to the graveyards. Wesley would go to the open fields. And he would go to the common man, to the coal miners, just off work with their face full of black coal. And he would preach Christ and tears would stream down their face, making rivers of white among the black coal on their faces. And Kent Hughes is absolutely right. Quotes, we too must beware. We can be Christianized right out of our Christianity. End quotes. How can we avoid this trap? By remembering that the mission of Jesus is our mission as fishers of men. By remembering verse 31, it is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus is the great physician, and he notices sinners like us. He sought us out, and he spoke to us. But my question is, have you felt your need this morning? Do you know that you are sick with the disease of sin? There's nothing more glorious than to be convicted of sin. It feels horrible, but there's nothing more glorious than the beginning there so that you see your need for Jesus because Jesus Christ is the spiritual heart surgeon and he only consults people on their spiritual deathbed. He only consults people on their spiritual deathbed. And you know what? He's not only the physician, but you know what he gives? He gives the balm of Gilead. My Savior's obedience and blood have all, hide all my transgressions from view. It's Jesus himself who is the cure for the corrupt. He's both the physician and the cure. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Amen.